our family has been here about a year, and uh, we um, became members a couple of months ago. Um, I have preached before at my pr uh, prior church. Uh, the pastor was a workhorse. He pretty, pretty much preached 50 times out of 53 times a year, but those two or three times that he wasn't there, like on summer and maybe winter, I uh, filled in. But it's been a, it's been a little bit, so um, I'm glad to... to stand in this pulpit and, and so thankful for the honor to preach in a, in a pulpit that is so committed to Jesus and to the Word of God, and so it's really an honor. Um, I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then uh, we'll get started. Uh, Jesus, thank you for your Word. Uh, there's a lot here, God. Um, it's a lot of symbolism, a lot to, to take in, and a lot to try to understand, and we can't, we can't quite do it justice in this uh, next 30 to 40 minutes, and so we just pray, Lord, that you would teach us, um, that you would instruct us, that the Holy Spirit would come and reveal Jesus to us, that we would see him in a clearer way, uh, that he would shine, that he would be the object of our affection, the object of our trust, Lord, that you would even bring um, a change of heart and a change of mind towards him, that we would bring repentance, Lord, that you would bring faith that we would trust him just even that much more because of your word today. Um, God, help me to stay out of the way and just to be uh, faithful to communicate your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, uh, like I said in my prayer, there is, and as you, as you obviously, when you read uh, Revelation 1, 9-20, there's a lot here. And, and honestly, we can't, we can't get to everything. It's not the, really the setting. It's a, probably a Bible study where you have like an hour, maybe two hours to kind of get through Revelation 1, 9-20. It would probably be the more appropriate setting to kind of unpack all the symbolism. Um, but what I would say is that if you wanted to actually kind of see a parallel to Revelation 1, 9-20, the amazing parallel is in Daniel 7-10. If you just read through the Old Testament, Daniel 7 through 10, it's almost like reading Revelation 1, 9 through 20. It's, it's uh, uncanny, almost. Uh, you have Daniel getting a, a revelation uh, from God, trying to understand what is going on. Uh, the Son of Man is revealed. Um, Daniel freaks out and is distraught by the vision that he sees. We see he sees a, a conquering king who will reign forever and will bring about the justice that Israel desperately wants. Um, and he just, for a couple of chapters, he can't quite understand it. And he's like, uh, like John, you know, almost like, what is going on? And, he, and like almost falling dead, like John is described in Revelation 1. And then in Daniel 10, uh, the father touches Daniel and says, fear not, loved one. Uh, let me explain this further. Let me, let me encourage you. Let me, let me um, come alongside you to under, help you understand what is going on. And, and the same thing here in Revelation 1. So if you wanted to, to read that, uh, that would be a pretty good parallel. Um, so John is given a task. John's given a task to encourage the saints to persevere through their suffering. And as he's given this task, this, this task to uh, write to the, to the churches, right, to the seven churches, he's also given an unveiling of Jesus. Remember we talked about, Doug talked about how Revelation is really an unveiling. It's a, here's who Jesus really is. It's, as I was trying to think about it, it's kind of like, you know, Jesus in further high definition, right, where you can actually see a little bit more of the detail, a little bit more of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so John has re uh, revealed Jesus in such a way that is monumental, 
right? This is a monumental revelation of Jesus. This is not ordinary, right? We, we, the symbolism and the vision that he receives is really quite amazing. And it prepares John for this task. God always, when he gives a task to a, a, someone like John or a Moses or, or somebody else, reveals himself in, in monumental ways to prepare him for the task. And he does this with John as well. And if you're going to read through this letter, right, this is, remember, this is a letter to churches. If you're going to read through this letter to the end, then you must have this anchor. You must have this revelation of Jesus. This, this is here for a reason, right? You always, when you study the Word of God, you always go, why did Jesus reveal himself in this way in chapter 1? He did it as an anchor to help you understand and help you to persevere through all of what the rest of Revelation is going to bring. We have to see Jesus in this way to help us to understand how to persevere to the end. It's a revealing of Jesus in all his glory and power, and that's exactly what we need to persevere to the end. So this, this, this uh, section kind of breaks up into three parts. What I'm going to do is I'm going to do something a little bit different. Normally, I like to kind of apply the word as we go and, and illustrate, but I'm kind of going to save some of that for the end and make some observations. So what I want to do is I just want to break through this, this, uh, this text in kind of three parts. The first part is that John reveals his own suffering and the church's suffering. If you look at verse 9, it says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was on the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. John identifies himself as a fellow sufferer, he says in verse 9. He's a fellow sufferer with the churches. As he's, as he's writing, he's exiled, right, to Patmos on account of his faith, on account of being true to the word of God, account of not turning back when he's faced with persecution and suffering. And so John is exiled at this time. He reminds the churches that he is a fellow sufferer with, with them, I'm sorry. He's not somebody who is on his own, you know, escaping suffering, saying, hey guys, you're going to suffer. Um, and if you do, here's how to do it. He says, I, I, I'm suffering as well. Uh, in fact, I'm on Patmos right now. I'm, I'm in like Alcatraz. You know what I mean? I, I guess that's the best parallel we can think of today, right? I'm, I'm somewhere that you don't want to be, uh, you know, spending your time, right? And so John reminds the churches that they are to have patient endurance and that, that tribulation is part of living in Jesus's kingdom. In fact, verse 9 states that the patient endurance is in Jesus. When, when you see this word in Jesus, it's like saying this is in the sphere of, of Jesus. Like if you are with him and if you are connected to him in faith, trouble, tribulation and patience endurance is what is part of that. It's package deal. And so he reminds them that this isn't really to be surprised, right? To be surprised by it. This is who you are. This is what you're called to. This is what it means to follow Jesus. And so he says, I'm with you in this. And, G and guess what? Jesus is as well. We, and we're reminded of this in the New Testament, that this isn't to be a surprise. John 15, verse 20. John says, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. 
And if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. First Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's, it's promise. It's guaranteed. And let's not forget that when we think about Revelation, that this is, again, a letter to churches. And it's a letter to churches trying to live out their faith in Jesus Christ in the midst of suffering. They are, facing, they are facing suffering, and it should be no surprise. And John makes it clear from the beginning that he is with them, and this is what Christianity is all about. We are a family, and we suffer together. And what makes Christianity is unique that I love about this is that John, again, identifies with his people. I am a fellow sufferer. I am not escaping suffering. I am not using my, my prestige and power in the church to somehow avoid it. I am with you, and I am suffering as well. And I am encouraging you as one who is currently suffering. And of course, we know that Jesus Christ is the greatest example of that, right? He is not one who is above suffering or escaped it or avoided it, but that he willingly did it so that we could be forgiven forever. That's unique to Christianity. You won't find another leader willing to step in and suffer, ultimately to the point of death on a cross, willing to be abandoned so that others will not be abandoned. It's completely unique. And so John reminds the churches that this suffering is, is part of what, they, what it means to be a Christian. He reminds them that he is suffering as well, and then he is uh, given a task by the risen Jesus to write letters to these churches in order to call them to repentance and perseverance, to keep going in the midst of what they're going through. Let's look at the next section, uh, uh, verses 12 to 16. And in here, we see the revelation of Jesus as king of all. Really, the next two sections are two pictures of Jesus. This is more of his uh, revelation as king, as judge, as ruler over all the nations. Let's look at verse 12. Through 16. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in the right hand, in his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth, he came, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. I like how uh, Leon Morris in his commentary sums up this section. He says, this book is an unveiling or revealing. The Christians were a pitiably small group persecuted by mighty foes. To all outward appearance, their situation was hopeless. But it is only as Christ is seen for what he really is that anything else can be seen for what it really is. Let me read that again. But it is only as Christ is seen for what he really is is that anything else can be seen for what it really is. So for these persecuted ones, it was important that first of all, the glory and the majesty of the risen Christ be made clear. So I think he summed it up super well. So as we look at verse 12, 
we see this title, the Son of Man, which would have helped us understand what is happening here. Uh, if, you were read, if you were familiar with the Old Testament, if you were an Old Testament believer, and you saw, this, you saw John say, I saw one like the Son of Man, it would have immediately taken you back to Daniel 7. Listen to what Daniel 7 says in verses 13 to 14. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Amazing picture. Daniel uh, pointed to Jesus Christ who would come and be this one who would have an everlasting dominion, who will not pass away, and his kingdom will not lose. It will not be destroyed. And so when you saw this title, it was the ultimate uh, direction back to Daniel. And Jesus, he used this title all the time. He used Son of Man to describe himself some 81 times. It was, I believe, his most uh, popular reference to himself. And so let me just walk you through some of the ways he used this. In Luke, the, the term is used to describe his public ministry. In Luke 9, 58, it says, Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to rest his head. And in Luke 19, 10, it says, son of man, The Son of Man comes to seek and to save the lost. It was used to describe who he was in his public ministry. And in Mark 10, 45, the term Son of Man describes his suffering as the Savior. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then in Mark 14, 61 and 62, he uses it to fully describe his person and work. It's like a perfect encapsulation of who he is and what he does. In verse 61, he says, but he remained silent and made no answer. And again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ the Son of the Blessed. And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. How did Jesus get to the right hand of power? He's not there currently, right? He's about to die. And so in Mark, we see that the title Son of Man refers to his victorious death and resurrection over sin, death, and hell so that he could be seated at the right hand of power. That's the only way it happens. His self-declaration of the Son of Man comes through his death and resurrections. It, again, these verses show that Jesus first had to suffer a sacrificial death in order to be raised through resurrection. So when you, this title, Son of Man, is such an important title. It is, it's so key to understanding who Jesus is and who is being described in Revelation 1. And so when John sees this vision of Jesus in Revelation 1, verses 12 to 16, it's emphasizing that he is judge and king over all the churches and over all of history, right? This is, again, that's why Daniel 7 was written. It was written to encourage the people to persevere and know that it won't always be like this. You won't always have 
hard times. There won't always be suffering and, and slavery and persecution. There's going to be one who's going to come and who's going to rule again, and he's going to rule forever, and his kingdom will know no end. And his title is Son of Man. His title, ultimately, we know, is Jesus. And so when John is revealed again in, in Daniel 1, I'm, I'm sorry, in Revelation 1, he's reminding, Jesus is reminding John, he's reminding the churches that he is this one. He is this one whose kingdom has no end. He is the one who rules over all. And all the descriptions that we read in, about in Revelation 1, 12 to 20, the, the fact that he is, has the long robe and the golden sash and his hairs of head were like white, which is actually a, a reference to the father, uh, that was actually referred to in the, as like the father in Daniel 7 earlier uh, before verses 13 and 14. And his eyes were like flame of fire, his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. All refers to his fact that he is ruling over all. There is no one who rivals him. There is no one who can compete and compare. And a suffering church needs to hear that, right? A suffering John needs to hear that. We need to hear that. You know, as, as, uh, in verse 16, when he says, in, in his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. When I first read that, I was like, oh, he's talking about like Hebrews, that the word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword. That's actually a reference to Isaiah and, and God judging and ruling the nations. This is all about the fact that he is king over all and ruler over all. But he doesn't stop there. Let's look at the next, next part of this. The next part of this is that Jesus reveals himself as suffering Savior. Verses 17 to 20. When I saw him, starting in verse 17, Revelation 1, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So again, verses 12 to 16 highlight the fact that Jesus is judge and king over all, and 17 and 20 highlight Jesus as the suffering, suffering, excuse me, suffering Savior. John is distraught, right? He, it says in verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Uh, I was looking at, thinking like, I was like, oh, maybe this is like a, a worship, right? Uh, you know, this is him falling at his, uh, at his feet to say, I'm not worthy, right? Uh, and, you know, you, there's passages in the Gospels that actually talk about um, people falling at Jesus' feet as though dead, but it's in a, it's in a completely different context. It's, they're able to talk, they're able to uh, communicate, and they actually do worship and say, you know, something to the effect of, Jesus, I need you, help me, right? This is not the case, okay? John literally is, he is literally fallen like he is dead. He cannot quite uh, uh, imagine or stomach what he has been revealed. Just like Daniel. Just like Daniel took two chapters of panic and, trying, and figuring out what is going on. What is this vision that you showed me? 
And just like Daniel 10, John is encouraged by the message of a suffering Savior. Jesus reminds John that all of history lies in his hand and that his death and resurrection is the key to understanding this history. Jesus is the first and the last, the creator of all and the judge of all, the one who creates life lovingly and and then voluntarily gives his own life. He is the suffering Savior who died in John's place and was resurrected never to die again. He has the keys of death in Hades, meaning he alone has the power to forgive and to judge. Jesus is revealed to John and to us in the midst of their suffering as the suffering Savior. Yes, he is king over all. Yes, there are no rivals. There, there is no one who can compete. But this same king who is over all is also a willing, suffering Savior in the place of people who don't deserve it, who couldn't earn it, and who, who have no rightful claim to what Jesus has to offer. Jesus is reve- we have to see this Jesus, right? We, we can't see the Jesus of just being judge and king over all, and we can't see the cuddly Jesus as being uh, the suffering savior. We need to see all of who he is, and that's why John is revealed, uh, or why Jesus is revealed to John in this way. The son of man from Daniel is here. He has revealed himself to John and the churches and to us today. He has come in the flesh and is an earthly ministry to die a substitutionary death for his people. And he's raised to power, ruling even now over all history and human affairs. He now rules over his people, the church, and gives them letters and revelation so they will persevere to the end, even in the midst of their sin, tribulation, and trials. And ultimately, He reveals himself so that we wouldn't look to anything else, but that we would look to him. Let me make a couple observations. Number one, Jesus is the key to understanding our suffering. I mean, if you think about it, again, as complicated as Revelation is, right? And we all know that when Doug announced that we were preaching Revelation, we all probably had some kind of trepidation, right? What is going to happen? What is this going to be like? Right? Are we going to be seeing Kurt Cameron movies? You know, what, are we going to be getting clips of crazy aliens and monsters? What, what, you know, what is going to be? Will there be interpretive uh, raptures you know, where people just don't show up one day? We didn't quite understand it, right? <laughs> um, but, but, but hear this. There's a beautiful simplicity here. John is suffering. The churches are suffering, and there is plenty more to come, right, as outlined in the book of Revelation, right? Notice that the answer isn't a few steps. Notice that the revelation isn't, here are some steps to get through this. That's not the unveiling, right? It's not, we're not revealed in ideology. We're not even told to look into ourselves and to self-introspect. We're not even told to self-realize and become the truest version of yourself, John is directed outside of himself, not inward. A person is revealed to John. We are directed outside of ourselves. We are directed to a king and a savior. 
We have to, we must, in the midst of our trials and our tribulation that maybe you're not experiencing now, but they're coming, right? We have to not look to ourselves. We can't look inwardly. We have to look to Jesus. We have to see him for all of his glory and all he is. We have to see him as king and ruler over all and as the one who will touch your, your shoulder in the midst of freaking out and say, fear not. I've got the keys. I'm, I'm, I'm the savior. I, I've got this. I've, I've, I've conquered all of your enemies already through the cross and resurrection. We have to look outside of ourselves. This is beautiful. Jesus is the key to understanding our suffering. It is not anything else. It is not anything else. We are directed to him. So, where do you go when persecution and suffering come your way? Where do you go? I know at times when that happens to me, I shut down. Right? I, I become apathetic. Oh, I don't care. I act like I don't care. Right? Do the macho thing. Right? That's not dealing with it. Right? Do you become self-righteous and use it to look down on other people? Right? Oh, look at them. They're suffering. Shouldn't have done that. Right? Oh, I told you know. I knew that was going to come. Or do you just run away from the pain and settle for apathy or self-medicate? We will run to something in the pain. We will. It's just, it's, I don't have a magic potion to describe this, but that is our reality. We will to run to something in the pain. Jesus is calling us to run to him. He's calling us to run to him. Not that you will have all of your answers, not that we will, you know, the pain will go away. I love Sean the psalmist when he talks about uh, being a shelter. I love the, the, the imagery of shelter in Psalms. You know why? Because it implies that the, all around you is chaos and craziness, right? That's what a shelter is. It's protection in the midst of craziness, in the midst of har- harsh weather, right? He doesn't promise us to take us out of the harsh weather. He doesn't promise to take us out of the chaos. He promises us to be shelter in the midst of it so that we are protected in some way through it all. And that's, and that's his kindness, and that's his love. Look at uh, verse 17. Again, it says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. This touch, this Jesus laying his right hand on John, is amazingly personal and loving. No other person, idea, or thing will do this to you in the midst of your pain. Your spouse might give you a hug. Your kids might see your tears and bring you a tissue. You might try to buy your way out of the pain, but only Jesus can offer this personal touch that carries with it the words of life. Fear not. All of this is under my loving control. I'm not mad at you. In fact, this is how I love. I think we often think that when suffering and and tribulation comes, that it's God's way of getting revenge. At the cross, Jesus completely satisfied the Father's wrath against you. He is not angry with you. He only has love towards you. Do you believe that? 
I don't. Oftentimes I struggle to believe that. At the cross, Jesus completely took away any anger, any wrath towards you. When suffering comes, as hard as this is to stomach, it is love. It is his best. It is his care. Yes, does he discipline? Absolutely. But he does it in love. It's amazing. I love what Hebrews 10 says, verses 14 to 16. He says, Since then we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For, why? Why can we do this? Why can we hold fast our confession? For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then. So why can we hold fast our confession? Because Jesus has been tempted in every single way. He can sympathize. He knows what it's like to face tribulation and trials and suffering, and yet he did not sin. A temptation is just a, is a, is a trial or a tribulation that comes to you that you're tempted to either let it uh, affect you so that you sin or a way to turn you to God. That's what a temptation is. And he was tempted in every way, yet without sin. That's why we can hold fast our confession. We have a, someone who represents us, who has gone through it with us and has been victorious. And then he says in verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus is the key to understanding our suffering. He's been through it. He can sympathize with it. And he yet is victorious over it. And he wants you to come to him to find mercy and grace in your time of need. It's a command. Go to him with confidence because of what he has done. Uh, second observation, I'm done. We face suffering and trials together. We face suffering and trials together. The, the encouragement to keep going in the midst of suffering, persecution, and trials is directed to a community. The book of Revelation is written to churches. It's written to a community, a gathered people called the church. Again, Revelation is not written to a person. It is not a book for you to figure out all the symbols and all the imagery and everything that's going on so that you have a better uh, understanding of the end times. You can do that, and that's perfectly fine. But it is, first and foremost, a letter to churches. It's a letter to a people. And again, this has massive implications for how we approach suffering and trials. Yes, these suffering affects you personally, right? I'm never going to discredit that. But first and foremost, we have to live out our identity as brothers and sisters in Christ by letting others into our suffering so that we can be encouraged and strengthened. We have to let others in. We have to let people know what is going on, right? Why the sad face? Why, why, why the struggle? What, what's going on? And that takes time. And I know that's not something you just walk up to people and go, hey, here's all my, my stuff. You know, let me just, you know, puke it on, puke it on to you real quick. Uh, and good luck, uh, you know, sorting it out. Uh, no, it takes time. It takes trust. It takes just being in proximity and, and practicing community and being brothers and sisters but we have a responsibility to let others into our lives to understand how 
our suffering is affecting us and what exactly is going on so that we can go through this together. We won't go through it together if we don't ever let anybody in. And as this happens, right, as people uh, let you into their lives, you have to reveal uh, not just, again, an ideology, not just, again, some steps to get through it. Those, while those may be helpful short-term, we also have to direct our family to the Jesus that's revealed in Revelation 1. That's our call as a community, is we remind each other of Jesus when we're going through suffering. We remind that, that he is ruler over all, that, that your suffering is not outside of his plan, that he's not caught by surprise, that he is somehow uh, on vacation and can't figure this out, but that he is ruling over your circumstances, he's directing them, he's guiding them, in fact, he ordained them, and that he did it lovingly. And he did it because he wants you ultimately to come to him and seek him in greater ways. That's your task when somebody reveals what's going on. It's not to shame them, it's not to judge them, it's not to just go, oh, well, that may be appropriate at times. It might be appropriate not to say a single word. But ultimately, our task is to point them to this Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. We talk a lot about collective responsibility now. We talked a lot about it during COVID and other times. When it comes to the church, here's our collective responsibility. Our collective responsibility is that we will let others into each other's lives. Because when one suffers, all suffers. That's what the, book, that's what the New Testament teaches us that we will, by believing the gospel, by believing that if I reveal something that's going on in my life, it won't be my judgment. It'll just be a chance to grow, right? By believing that, that's hard, and that takes time and work. I have that, we have that responsibility. And we also have that other uh, responsibility to encourage, to come, along, come alongside, to bear each other's burdens, as it says in Galatians. We face suffering and trials together. There is no way we will get through, the, through the, the tribulations that come without doing it as a family. That's why community groups are so vital. That's why our relationships are so vital. That's why a cup of coffee is so vital with, with a friend or brother and a sister in Christ to just take time and practice this idea that we're family. Let's pray. Jesus, um, help us to see you for who you truly are. Help us not to see anything uh, else, to not have our own vision of you or our own ideas, Lord, that's so easy to do. Help us to see you for who you truly are. Help us to look into your word so that we are encouraged by you, that we see how you are ruling over history, how you love us, and how you have died in our place so that we would never face alienation, true alienation, that we would never face true shame, that we would never face uh, the power and penalty of our guilt because you've taken it all. Help us to look to you and help us to be the church and encourage each other as we go through various things, Lord. We ask this in your name. Amen.